Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where people tell me five things from their life that they'd choose to have in a time capsule, if they could. They pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to bury and forget. My guest in this episode is the ex-policeman-turned-comedian, Alfie Moore. If you don't come across Alfie as a comedian, then maybe you've come across him in his previous job, because he spent more than 20 years serving as a policeman with both the Lincolnshire and Humberside forces, before taking the obvious next step of turning to stand-up comedy, as they all do. He's taken a number of very successful shows to the Edinburgh Festival, including in 2014 when his show The Naked Stun sold out for 25 nights and was awarded the Edinburgh Fringe Laurel for a sellout show. Alfie's brilliant Radio 4 comedy series, It's a Fair Cop, is the perfect vehicle for Alfie, with his skillful blend of succinct layman explanations about the law, very funny anecdotes from his own policing experiences, and his ability to take the audience through a real-life scenario from his own police casebook. The premise of the show is that Alfie swears in the audience as police officers and challenges them with the real moral dilemmas that police officers on the street face every day. He invites them to share what real-time decisions they would have made, often with unexpected results. It's had seven brilliant series, from a very small beginning, as you'll hear in this episode. Alfie is currently touring the UK with his own solo show, Alfie Moore, A Face for Radio. The tour continues into 2024, so book now, unless you're listening to this in 2025, by which time there'll almost certainly be a different show on the road. I'm sure you'll find it online. Still, the question is, what things does Alfie Moore cherish from his unusual life? And which thing would he most like to bury and banish from it? Well, let's find out, shall we? Here is the delightful Alfie Moore. So I live on quite a busy road, so I've come out the house deliberately. Very good. 
Uh, I wish I remembered to put the heaters on up here a bit earlier. But, but, uh, so you might hear a bit of uh, shivering, slight sort of yes, <laughs> <laughs> bit of traffic noise. Okay, uh, but uh, we should be all right. Lovely. Well, I'm looking forward to being sworn in as a policeman. That's the thing that I like about your program is that you swear the audience in and say, "Now, come on, it, you see how you do with these decisions." It's a it's such a simple idea, Alfie. Yes. But it's, it works brilliantly because, in a way, if you're going to say to people, you, you don't realise how hard this job is. Exactly. And I love the fact that the audiences, as one quite often, will go, well, obviously that. Yeah. And then that turns out to be the really foolish thing to do. Yeah. Policing is really difficult, and it's, it's more difficult than ever, mm-hmm. I should think, at, at, at the moment. So it's nice to turn the tables in a very gentle way, because people think it's easy. There are a lot of armchair detectives and armchair police officers. They'll be watching this weekend uh, and they'll be saying, oh, the police should be doing this, the police should be doing that. Yeah. And uh, they rarely say about surgeons and other professions. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you want to be taking that out, mate. You want to be getting a scalpel to that. They, but everybody's a, a police expert, you know, so yeah. it helps them appreciate how difficult some of those real-time decisions are. Even, and they're all quite straightforward, simple things. You know, should I chase? Should I search? Should I arrest? Should I not? Yeah. And and, and do you know what? It's, it's nice as well to that the, the organisation I wasn't sure how they'd be with it mm. because we've been different phases in policing. I'd have never been able to do stand up as a, as a as a cop, you know, twenty years ago. Yeah, because they were very secretive and up themselves, and, and then they suddenly decided that they needed to be more open mm-hmm. and uh, transparent. And that's just when I started doing stand up, really. So I was a bit of an experiment, I think, in their eyes. And some senior officers, uh, some of my chief constables, uh, have, have kept me at arm's length for that reason. Right. Yeah. Still horror stories about Bernard Manning at the <laughs> at the Greater Manchester Police Federation conference. Wonderful, uh, yes. As he did his uh, racist, sexist, with all the cops laughing. Oh God! But but sort of the organisation, I think, I think from uh, you know, I get positive feedback for them, and it's nice as well. They sort of like what I do, mm-hmm. just that community engagement. That's 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 nice. Yeah, well, it's not a criticism of the police. It's a demonstration of how difficult the thing is, and I think that that's. That's something that people don't think about. Uh, you know, there is a lot of antipathy towards police in, in many areas, and that must be very difficult to deal with when you say, well, look, I, I'm just here to do a job. I've not got anything against you. Yeah, it's just business, yeah. It's that complicated relationship mm-hmm. between a police officer and, and the public in as much as, you know, they should be friendly, but they can't really be friends in a professional yeah. capacity. I guess it's a bit like a parent and, and child-type relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, we're here for you. We're, we 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 look after you, and and we've got a good, positive, friendly relationship. But there's a side to it. Whereas I'm the authority figure, and you know, it's it's that, it's that strange thing that people may resent or or may find it it comforting. You know, but it's a very strange relationship. Yeah, the fact that most people in this country still, if there was trouble, would call the police, I think is a good sign. Yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely, mm. definitely. It read all sorts of negative stuff in the press, but. If you go to a meeting and people say, you know, uh, we like the police, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's a really difficult thing to measure, yes. that, that relationship. But in a way, you can through your show. You know, you can get a sense of how anti the police an audience is yeah. or how sympathetic they are towards what they have to do. Yeah. Well, I think when I first started doing it, although it was, uh, they have a, a lovely audience for BBC Radio 4 to, to go to the, they're on the email list to go to Broadcasting House. Mm-hmm. But I think there was a lot of sort of, uh, I wouldn't say middle class, but but Guardian reading, 
come to have a pop at uh, right, yeah, uh, and and when they got there, they they, they realised that that uh, <laughs> there was a bit of that going. But they realised that actually, you know, he's 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 all right actually, and actually these these are tough decisions. So yeah, so yeah, interesting, interesting. Yes, it is interesting. So you did twenty years. Did you start doing stand up before you'd left the police? Then yes, oh. yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, midlife crisis. <laughs> so the, some of the time capsule things really. I've, I've tried to do them in an order that that maybe tells the story a little bit. Great. As we go along, if that's... Uh... Okay, well, let's look through those things then that you've chosen to put in a time capsule and see what it tells us about you and what it tells us about what you love and what you don't want, really. Okay, uh, so the first thing I want to put in the time capsule is a pair of short trousers. <laughs> so early memories of growing up in, in Sheffield. So working-class family, council house in, in, in Sheffield was where I grew up, but... My earliest memories are in Australia, really, because we were the ten pound poms. Ah. Not just my immediate family of my mum and dad and my, my elder brother, but uh, my dad's two sisters and their entire families, and my granddad and grandma. Wow! So everybody went. To but Australia. they made that as a family decision, then. Yeah, I, I don't know what the thought process was, but I'm guessing that that was yeah that that was all going on behind the scenes. So yeah, we, different ships, uh, but but we all went in the late sixties, and we went to Adelaide on the south coast because my family were all all mechanical engineers, Sheffield based mechanical engineers, and and there was a lot of car plants. Uh, so so we all went, and everybody else stayed except my immediate family. Right. We came back after four years. Mm. And again, the short trousers resonates because we, we'd sold up everything to come back. And I don't know the full story be, behind that, to be honest with you. Uh, my granddad on my mum's side had died, and I think my grandma was was lonely, so there was a little bit of that going on. Mm. And, and I'm not sure, reading between the lines, my, my dad ever really settled. So for whatever reason, we sold up and we came back after four years and ended up with nowhere to live. So we ended up on 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 quite a uh, <laughs> quite a, a colourful estate in 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 Sheffield called the Manor Manor Estate. Right, Wyburn and Manor was a big council estate. Is it the one on the uh, other side of the valley? Yeah, there's a, an enormous estate in Sheffield, isn't there? That you basically look at from the city yeah. of Sheffield. So if you're in Sheffield, yeah. you get off the train, you go to the city centre, all the time on the other side of the valley on the hill. Is that huge estate? It probably is, actually. Mm. It, it, like Rome, they tell me that uh, Sheffield is built on six hills, the city of Sheffield, six hills. Like Rome. I think that's probably the only similarity <laughs> in the two places. <laughs> but but, uh, but it, it was it was a sort of uh, 75 uh, South End Road on the Wyburn is where we, we all moved in mm. uh, with uh, my brother, mum and dad, uh, with my grandmother, Elsie. And the school was quite rough and ready. It was called Manor Park School. Mm. The joke I used to do in the show was it did prepare you for life. I remember one lesson, morning children, today we're going to have a story about Oscar, the police <laughs> helicopter, and how to avoid his thermal imaging cameras when running from a crime scene. <laughs> so we turned up at Manor Park School. Um, my brother, a couple of years older than me, and he could scrap a bit, which is fortunate, mm. because we hadn't. it was winter and we was talking a bit funny because we'd been in Australia four years, so I came out with an Australian accent. And all we got is short trousers. <laughs> and I stood in the playground in freezing cold uh, in this, this, this quite rough and ready school in the pair of short trousers talking funny. Well, backs to the wall. It, it was handy that my, my brother could scrap a bit, to be honest with you. So they, they, they were my. <laughs> so, so for short trousers, really, uh, goes in for fond memories of Australia. Mm. And they are fond memories, are they? Were you, how old were you when you went there? 
about three, came back about seven. Right, uh, yeah. So you would remember yeah. it. It's, yeah, I, I mean, in a way, it. that must have sort of felt like a, an extended holiday. Yeah, just just happy times. So, so I, I remember that we had a garden, the, the corrugated uh, metal fence around the garden, a lot of bungalows. Everybody was in a bungalow. Mm. Uh, I don't know if that's an Australian thing. And uh, I, I remember Dad used to grow cabbages. I remember the cabbage white butterflies in the back garden. We spent a lot of time outside. Mm. There was a creek. I, I look back now, I mean, health and safety. We used to swing over the creek. Uh, <laughs> That was just down the road, and there was snakes in all sorts and yeah. <laughs> lizards and snakes looking at us from the bottom of the creek, and we thought this was hilarious, you know. So <laughs> uh, I looked back, and, and the odd sort of uh, the odd crocodile turning up in the bath and things like that, and wow. and the blokes, the, the men suddenly running to the shed and getting a spade and whacking crocodiles in the bath, and just just <laughs> straight. So so I guess in the sixties, it, it was a bit sort of bit more basic. Mm. Pubs weren't a thing. No. But it, it, it was great, a community spirit, really, because everybody had barbecues at different people's houses. Mm. And so a lot of time running around people's gardens where the adults had a, had a drink and a barbie. Or, or we used to go to the beach, I remember. And everybody had old cars in Australia yeah. uh, because it lasted longer, I guess, the bodywork. But even even so, we got holes in the floor of this car. And, <laughs> and I remember we used to all, all in the car drive down through the sand dunes to, to get to the beach. And of course, you couldn't see the car because all the sand was coming up through, through the, the holes in the car. <laughs> and and we'd all meet up with the with the rest of the family, and uh, we'd we'd have a an oil drum hidden, an old oil drum would, used to be hidden behind the rocks, and the, the blokes would build a fire, mm. and uh, and we'd we'd fill it full of seawater, and then everybody would go out catching crabs, just walking with you know with with a pair of thongs on, yeah. and then the scooping down and just. Grab and chuck him in the old jump, and then the cans of beer would get open, and, and <laughs> we'd all sit there eating, have, have a crab barbecue on on the beach. I just memories like that. So, yeah. so my uncle moved to Australia in the mid sixties. I remember him with all his children, and all of my other uncles and my father. We all stayed here. I've never seen so many adults cry for so long as they did at the party where they said goodbye to them. Yeah. And that's one of that's one of my um, another quite distinct memory was was packing things in 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 a, in a little van. Mm. And looking back now, we were off. We got a ship back as well. Yeah, uh, we went through the Panama Canal, I think, going, but it was closed on the way back <laughs> because of the trouble. That's a long way round, isn't it? Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. It was twelve or fourteen weeks. It, it was a real long job. Mm. Uh, they didn't rush. No, no. There's a real sense of going to the other side of the world, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I remember stopping off, and it was like natives with grass skirts and shells, and 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 yeah, it was like a fabulous adventure. Mm. But yeah, but there we are. Obviously, my my father was sat on the beach uh, one day and thought, you know, no, I need to get back to uh, need to get back to Sheffield. I need a bit of fog. Bugger <laughs> <laughs> this for a game of soldiers. Get <laughs> some proper weather. Well, uh, I'm glad that eventually you got back and got some long trousers. <laughs> I did. I did. Lovely. Yeah. Okay, well, let's put the short trousers in then to remind you of that time. Right. And let's move on to the next thing. All right. The next thing is Sooty's Eyes. Right. I'm going to put Sooty's Eyes. So my very first teddy bear that I still have was called Sooty. So uh, we're back in Sheffield, and my father, he started his own engineering business, a, a little job in shop in Sheffield. We still lived in a, in a council house. Mm. He was a character, my father, big Alf. I come from a long line of Alfs. Uh, he was a character, <laughs> s- intelligent man, and, and, and clearly got some drive in him. 
And he didn't move out of the council house, even when the business was going all right. And he got a Jag and a Ford Mustang parked outside the <laughs> Much to the annoyance, I should think, of other people. Why would you? The rent was fantastically low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if the roof blows off, he used to say, if the roof blows off, the council's got to put, put it back on. <laughs> yeah. If I own it. <laughs> That's right. I've got to pay for that. If the front door needs painting, we don't have to do it. Yeah. That was a me- mentality. Uh, so my dad was a gambler. Right. So I've got early days, uh, early memories of going, you know, going to the dog track at Ollerton Stadium with, with my father. And I've got memories of that. So so my dad was a gambler. And uh, and I, I guess I got into that at an early age. But I remember my father took me to the casino when I was 14. You had to be 18 to get in. I was old looking <laughs> 14, but because he, he put so much money across the table, they, they turned a blind eye. So was he a successful gambler, though? There is no such thing as a successful There's gambler. There's no such thing, right. There's no such thing as a successful gambler. It's, uh, I think it's uh, it's denial. One of the things I, I, I'm considering talking about is 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 sort of denial. And I I think it's quite quite sad. You, you walk into a betting shop and you see it's a sad energy, a sad place. Mm. And you'll see a group full of people that that will tell you that they just, you know, it's a it's a pleasure. They're entitled to enjoy themselves and this and that. <laughs> well, they've got a system. They've got a system. Always back the top weight in an eight horse race, and, mm-hmm. and everybody's got a system. And uh, really, it's a bunch of compulsive gamblers as a rule, or a majority of compulsive gamblers being taken advantage of. Yeah, being hooked in, into an addiction and being taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. And a blind our government, without getting on my soapbox, turning a blind eye to it because of the the massive tax. Revenue that it brings into the treasury. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Which is uh, when they ban smoking as a sponsor for any sport or anything like yeah. that, immediately in move the betting companies. Yeah, and you've got to ask yourself. I, I took a show at the Edinburgh Festival about uh, about my dad and, and, and gambling. Viva Alves Vegas, I, call, I called the show. <laughs> and because uh, my dad's dream was to go to Vegas. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it's strange, really. In, in a world we live in uh, where it's an accepted addiction, well, a chemical addiction, uh, I'd argue, just with chasing the dopamine high, mm-hmm. uh, the gamblers, the same as, as as alcohol, nicotine, class A drugs, it's it, it, same thing. But we would never, we would never give out free drugs to people. We'd never give out free alcohol, free cigarettes. And and here we, you've just mentioned the advertising, and, and here are the gambling companies advertising to the heart's content, giving out free bets to hook the next generation and I find it bizarre mm. that, that as a responsible society that, that we'd turn a blind eye to that and say, well, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's their money. Yeah, I'd, I'd find it bizarre. It's, that I'm that sure that the allow. cigarette companies are furious they didn't think of that, that they didn't no. basically say, we'll give you your first 200 packets free. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, that is morally repulsive. Isn't but because it? it's, it's gambling and the way it's sold and, and advertised and – Still advertise, still sponsor, you know. It's hard to watch a TV programme without it being interrupted, especially if it's any sporting programme. Mm. without them. So I find that bizarre. So so anyway, uh, I guess, am I a little bit bitter? I should think I am. Because I, I watched that effect on my, my house, on gambling, you know, as a, as a child. Yeah. Watched the negative effects that are to, to a family. And I myself, I would say, shut his eyes, I would say... Uh, I was a compulsive gambler by the age of about maybe 10, right. I would say. And I used to have a game of cards, three-card brag in my bedroom, and I used to empty my me, me coin jar, and we'd always put in, copying up, putting the money in. And uh, clearly I wasn't very good at it because I'd always be going down to my dad downstairs. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm skinned, can I have another 50 pence, can I have a... And and uh, he keeps supping me to go back upstairs and carry on the card game. Yeah, well, of course, as you said, if you play it long enough, any gambling, you're going to lose. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, your fairies bet is is like that—a room full of people sat around a table because because nobody's making the the edge, nobody's taking the cut, if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you and I flipped a coin, the odds would be even money each, mm-hmm. which would transfer it, it decimal to fifty fifty. Yeah. But if we went into a betting shop or a casino and said we want to flip a coin, <laughs> they'd say, "Okay, well, you you you'll get forty eight pence profit if you win." Yeah. We get two pence of each of you every time you place your bet. Mm-hmm. So in the end, if you sit there long enough, <laughs> you might have a, a lucky spell or a, a bad luck, a good luck might come into play. But if you sit there long enough, the money's going one way. It's yeah. it's a two percent every time. Yes, you place your bet. and they never lose. They can't lose in the no. long term. It's 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 physically impossible. So so I, the, the fairest bet is is when I was in my bedroom, ironically, sat around the table, a little bit of skill in bluffing or not, in yeah, meeting yeah. people. That's the only bit of skill that clearly I wasn't very good at. So I got I got to one point, and it was a big hand. Everything had gone in this because I got a good hand. I got a, I got a running straight. I think only mm. three cards. A cheap version of poker, three card bright. And the kid I was playing against, David Cox, I think it was the kid I was playing against. Who was a who was a cheeky cheeky uh, kid, probably in prison now. And uh, <laughs> he no, he's chief he's inspector. Still, <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably that's it. Yeah. So I put all my money in, and he wouldn't stop. And I needed to see him. And I'd already been down and tapped my dad for some money downstairs, big elf downstairs. So I was like stuck. And I said, well, I need to see your hand. And 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 David Cox turned to, to Sooty, who was sat in, in a chair in the corner, and said, put your teddy bear's eyes in. Oh, my word. Yeah, you're looking back. <laughs> I put what happened to him. What a strange child. <laughs> no, but of course. I wrong about yeah. Chief Inspector. He runs an enormous crime gang. <laughs> Yeah. Everybody's terrified of him. Yeah, and and and, and you know, and this is my this is my first teddy bear. You know, who yeah. was in my cot with me and uh, was older than I was. And uh, the next minute, uh, his eyes is in, and uh, he got three of a kind. Wow! So I'd lost such his eyes, which I guess is an early lesson about consequences yeah. and taking responsibility for, for your actions. Did it affect you? Did it work? Oh no, I carried on. I carried on uh, being a being a gambler, and and my first wife, Lynn, I would think you know, the irony being, I ended up a DS in the domestic violence unit, a public protection team, mm. and dealt with. And now we talk about coercive control, which is uh, which uh, that's a lot to do with financial abuse, quite a lot, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I can remember when I first started working uh, in my apprenticeship, and you paid a little brown pay packet. Yeah, very often that didn't get past the bookies. You know, mm-hmm. I'd nip in the bookies on the way home on Friday or Thursday when when we got paid, and I'd uh, I'd be on broke, right? Borrowing fags off my dad or whoever, and and uh, so yeah, so, so which is why I got my soapbox about gambling now. Yeah, yeah, I don't blame you. Uh, how did you get out of it? Do you mind me asking, Elf? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how much of that side of my personality was there already. It's, it's DNA based, uh, the the, the risk taking side. Mm. But it is a pattern running through my life, and I guess policing helped that. Yeah, because blue line to jobs, you know, running into you not know incidents where you know you don't know what you're going to find or there's violent people, mm. and and I guess that buzz was replaced with policing, and and now it's walking on the stage in front of a, an audience full of strangers, not knowing if you're going to die on your backside yeah, or, or succeed. So you're taking an enormous personal risk every time. So once again, I've still got the adrenaline rush, a much more positive form, I, I, I would say. Yes, absolutely. When you think of people like your father who 
gone with all his brothers and sisters to Australia. And, yeah. and then after four years went, I'm sorry, everyone, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to go back. Yeah. That's a risk. That is a gamble. Yeah, yeah my memories of my father was he was an unusual man in as much as he didn't mind being different. Mm. And he didn't mind having a different opinion. It'd be an interesting man now because he, he would challenge behaviour. Yeah. Whereas, you know, a lot of the problems we've got in policing and WhatsApp groups and toxic masculinity and, mm. and, and, and through society, running through society. My father, even back then, many years ago, would have been the one to stand up and said, no, you're out of order. You shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. You know, and I look back and he was a brave, brave man who would challenge. It's a shame, things. really, that in fact, that desire to do something exciting led him to going into the betting shop rather than, as yeah. you say, he started his own company, started his own engineering company. Yeah. If he'd put all the energy into that, the chances yeah. are, you know, you could have bought the council estate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and a smart guy, a smart guy, mm. yeah. And my mum, I don't know, appear disrespectful, uh, my mum was a drinker. Uh. And you would not never suspect uh, of being so because she was a, I don't know, just a nice, quiet type. Mm -hmm. She always blamed my father. I don't know how much of that was true. Uh, I should imagine it was quite a stressful <laughs> experience uh, living with him at times. But she was a drinker. Right. And, and so uh, there was a bit of a, a trade-off, really. You know, it's, uh, and I've, I've, I've had that at times in my life as well, whereas, you know, you do that, and and that's that's not very good, mm. and that allows me to do this, and we can't complain about each other, right? You you've got your vice, I've got my vice, yeah. So how much of that was going on? I, I don't know. No, and it sounds, you know, it, it sounds like, oh, that was a weird upbringing, but all I can remember is a laughter. All I can remember <laughs> is is it, it, what a what a good fun time it was. Do you, do you know what I mean? That I've only got positive memories, really. Yes. Well, as a gambler, quite often all you remember are the wins. Yeah. Well, that's what you're chasing. You're chasing the next, mm. the next win. You're chasing the next win. Yeah. I dealt with a lot of addiction in, in policing, and there's a theory which I subscribe to that, uh, and I guess it's true with all addictions, really. You're just operating at one notch down, and when you're doing your thing, it is the only time you feel normal, mm. which sounds about right. Yeah. I've seen that in, in, in policing with, with people. So you have some empathy and sympathy with these people yeah. who just want to be normal. You know, they just want to feel normal. Mm. Well, did Sooty ever get his eyes back? That's what I want to know. Well, I took the Edinburgh show, Fever's Alves Vegas. We bought him a pair of eyes. Ah. We put him a pair of eyes in. <laughs> For the start of the show, I had him sat in a little uh, little toy rocking chair on stage, <laughs> uh, Sooty, and uh, he got a pair of dark sunglasses on. <laughs> and I told the story about the card game, and the, and the, the audience were like... <laughs> But then I showed him that he's now now got eyes, yeah. which is good. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we did we did some. Uh, my wife and I did some. We did a little bit of a show reel at the end of it to, to to make everything feel better. And I remember at the end, one of the resolutions was that uh, we showed uh, Sutty there in his his, his 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 sunglasses on the beach, and we'd surrounded him by Barbie dolls. We bought off her eBay. On the beach. <laughs> so he was he was living the high life in the end. Uh, was, was sooty. And he got his equity card. Oh, well done. done. The show. Yeah. <laughs> He's still in my bedroom now. Yeah, Fantastic. Okay, well, let's put Sooty's eyes in. Okay. The original ones. Right, let's move on to number three, Alfie. Right, at break time, back soon. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to part two of my time capsule with the comedian Alfie Moore. Let's see what else he wants in his time capsule, shall we? Well, if you're listening, then I should imagine the answer to that question is yes. So here they are. Okay, a crime report, a handwritten, hard copy crime report. Mm-hmm. So I eventually, uh, I mean, I went to the Sheffield Steelworks, took an apprenticeship, uh, same as the other Alf Moors, recession. Uh, my dad went bankrupt in the end, uh, and I got made redundant and uh, left school at 16, no no qualifications. So as, as a young man, a bit of a bad attitude, no qualifications, uh, Compulsive behaviour, zero prospects. So, of course, I joined the police, Mike. What else? Yeah, well, there's a, there's only one alternative in those circumstances. <laughs> yeah. so, so, the police is one of those jobs you could go into without bizarrely having having a, a string of qualifications. If you pass the entrance exam, they would train you up and put you on decent money from the get go. <laughs> yeah. So that's what lured me into policing. Mm. Uh, and they helped with things like mortgages and all sorts of things, didn't they? They, they used to, when I joined, yes, yeah. there used to, be, used to be a rates allowance where they paid your rates for you. Yeah. My careers advisor at school was saying, don't go to sixth form and do A-levels. You could always join the police force. And then he said, how, yeah. how tall are you? And I said, I'm five foot nine nearly. And he went, no, you're not tall enough. Yeah. Well, different forces had different heights. Mm. Remember Derbyshire, you had to be six foot if you're a bloke. Yeah. And I think the City of London police were also six feet. You had to be six feet tall to join back in the day. When was that? About the 90s that they stopped that? Yeah, I would, I would have thought so. And all the perks that we're talking about where you lived in a police house rent-free mm-hmm. or if you lived in your own house, they, they paid a percentage of the mortgage and the rates and stuff like that. And there were all sorts of allowances and mm. women got tights allowances and men got this allowance and that allowance. <laughs> They've all been eroded over time. But yeah, very secure job. Mm-hmm. You signed up for 30 years. And no one ever left. You know, the culture is a complainy sort of culture. And if you ever hear two cops talking, very quickly in the conversation, you'll say, how long you got left? And then, <laughs> and then start giving the countdown. I've got another 12 years, uh, six months. And you know, Same conversation so, as prisoners. <laughs> yeah, ironically, yeah. So it's, it's, it's always had that negative sort of, uh, and you'll join a happy, keen young thing thinking you're going to be a white knight, going to get, lock up all the bad people, mm-hmm. you know, come ride it in on your, on, your, on your steed. And then after a while, 
he realizes a lot of nitty gritty, wheelie dealy gray areas. It's not like that. You know, you, you're not going to sort the world's problems out. It's not really like that. And then you've got these old cynical timers sat around the canteen and slowly they lure you in and you end up one of them, the grumpy old. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to think that I'm the exception. I'd like to think that I'm, I'm very grateful for the, and I didn't get to that sort of golden pension. I'd have to just over 20 years of my 30 year plan. Yeah. Uh, I'm on half as, and, uh, I'm still very grateful for the security and the lovely career it's given me. And, and, uh, I'm really positive about policing. Yeah. And I'm not one of these, uh, I've not got a job on GB News as a police advisor. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you how they've all gone woke and it's all, uh, <laughs> that's, which is the other alternative employment if you're an ex-cop, isn't it? Just of course, a, yes. A, a grumpy old uh, advisor. <laughs> so I'm putting a crime report in because, again, I'm trying to, trying to frame it in a positive way, mm. but it reminds me of how well we used to do the job when we've got the resources and when we've got enough time. Mm. And obviously the internet has, has, has been a big game changer in we're, we're busy in other areas that never existed. Yeah. But I can remember as a young keen Bobby and you couldn't get in a car for about two years. You had to put your big hat on and walk, <laughs> walk, walk, even for nights in the rain, you used to walk about looking for doorways and occasionally you'd get somebody that, uh, a mayor drive past in the car who was on one of the cars and said, get in, Alfie. You went through and I'd get in. <laughs> and then you'd see the sergeant's car come in to check up. And, <laughs> and he'd always slow down as you're passing each other. He'd slow down and wind the windows down and everything. And I, the, the amount of times I'd be hidden in the footwell <laughs> of his car. But the crime, you allocated crimes. And back then it was a carbonated six-piece copy of mm-hmm. a crime. And... Every crime that you attended, say to the radio, can you go to this criminal damage or this theft from a motor vehicle, mm. you know, on the high street, you'd go. And every crime, you've got boxes to tick off at the back that you'd actually done it, mm-hmm. to, you've investigated it. It would be put in your tray when you got back to where the, the crime report had been there, or you'd have to fill it in yourself to start with. And you were the kiddie from the beginning to the end of that. Right. There was, no, that's not my job. It's not my remit. You followed it through and learned all the skills in in, in that process. But, but I think, say that as an example, and, and again, I'm not winding out how good it used to be, but just an indication of how thorough and how properly we, we, we did the job mm. was that I'd, if you had your car broken into, if they uh, if they put a brick through your window and they took your radio cassette player, as it, as it would have been back then, mm-hmm. I would turn up, I would speak to you personally. So that would be a little box I'd have to tick to say, yes, I've spoke to you mm. and... Uh, Seen the complainant? Have you any idea who might have done this? Whatever, I'd, I'd do an area search to see if there's any, see if it's been discarded anywhere, or, or to see if anybody other, other other victims. I'd do house to house inquiries. I'd knock on doors uh, and say anybody heard anything, and uh, try and narrow the time frame down. Mm-hmm. Obviously, CCTV when that came in in a, in a bigger way later, you'd, you'd make all those inquiries, and then I'd I'd, I'd have to make a model of you. And then I'd visit all the second-hand shops. And there's a whole list of things. That I would go, I'd get the scenes of crime officer down there to say, can, can we have some fingerprints from this scene? Mm. I'd seize some of the broken glass sample in case I got a suspect. And I'd seize their clothing and because it's a, a unique thing, broken glass. Of course. But, but can you imagine that from a theft from vehicle? Yeah. No, nobody's coming today. You, you, you know, you're going to get a crime number. That's unless there's a spate of them or it's, it's a priority for, for some other way. But I look back on that and I think, you know, we tried to investigate all these things and that mm. would be my responsibility. I would own that crime. And, and that's, that's the process I would go through. Yeah. And, and at the end of the process, if it, 
I'd, I'd be contacting you and say, look, I'm sorry, I've done all these things and we've not managed to get the guy or we have whatever. And that'd be the full loop. Uh, but it would be on file as well. So, in fact, if that person came up yep. somewhere else, you could check it against it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I wonder then, Alfie, do you think that something like AI ought to be able to take over a lot of that responsibility, that actually this thing is, it knows the process and it goes through them all. It, it collates everything and coll- checks everything against everything else. If it could do that incredibly quickly. It makes perfect sense. It might take yeah, a burden off. It makes perfect sense. And, and uh, you know, the police still miss things. And back in the day, the downside of that, of course, it was a, it was a, it was a physical file-based system mm. and cross-referencing and things like that, even though we had basic computers. You know, I don't know if you if you saw the uh, the the the, uh, the Ripper thing recently. Yeah, yeah, very good show. But Peter Sutcliffe interviewed, and we, his car was in the system, and he'd been interviewed about this. He'd been interviewed somewhere else, and we were still making those mistakes because of a, a lack of technology. Well, it was it was, it was it, huge, though, wasn't it? I mean, there were yeah. millions of pieces of paper, and for somebody yeah. to recognise the connection between something in one drawer in one office and another drawer somewhere else, but that that carried on, Mike, for for a, a number of years. You used to have a system called the home system for murder inquiries. Mm. So if you're on a murder incident, you'd be feeding into what's called the home system. And it, it was an early sort of piece of software for collating. So so in the 80s, it came in, or maybe in the 90s, it came in. Then we had homes too. Yeah. And that was the first time we'd actually got something to give us a chance to put these things together. No. And that was, you know, you're only going back 20 years, yeah, if, yeah. If, if that. Uh, and we were still like, oh, dear. So when you mentioned, uh, you know, AI... If that helps that process, which you'd have thought it would, then there is a, a positive side. The negative side is, of course, all the crims are going to be all over it. <laughs> yeah, quite. It is a negative yeah. side. I mean, also, as long as what it does is it frees up policemen to do those other things, yeah. like you say, go and talk to people. And going back to that crime report, yeah, going back to that crime report, it's indicative, really. Stressing the police, in my view, was never front line. I mean, everybody's different, but I never mind doing the Friday and Saturday patrol with drunk in my face, you know, mm-hmm. wanting to knock my head off, you know, after you get used to that sort of thing. And after a while, it never bothered me, the confrontation side of it or the physical side of it never, never bothered me. The most stressful, there's two stressful things in policing. One is not knowing when you can get your time off. To try to book a holiday. <laughs> so that's quite stressful. Not being in control of your diaries is quite stressful. But the other thing is, Having a tray full of work and not getting to it and laying in bed thinking, you know, in policing, when I was in a domestic violence unit, I can remember having 40 or 50 jobs in my tray. Can you imagine the risk in that tray? Mm-hmm. The, the, it's a matter of, t- they're, all, they're all ticking time bombs. Yeah, yeah. And one's going to go wrong and it's got your collar number on it. And, and you're at home thinking, did I do that? Did I do that? What what have I and I used to spend about three hours a week just updating the crime report, saying, "Here's why I've not got to this yet." You know, yeah. and, and 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 that's that's the biggest stress in policing. That's why you lose good people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who, who go on and take on other careers. And that's why we've had such a such a drain, really, on experience. It's all right realizing you made a mistake and recruiting twenty thousand new cops. 20,000 student officers now being trained by other student officers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and people like me, I'm a comedian, I've gone. You know, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, but so, so it was, if you can do the job properly, how frustrating is it for those poor cops not being able to get, not being able to, 
there's nothing more embarrassing than knocking on the door and saying to a witness, you know that that thing you you you, you saw three months ago. Can you remember what it looked like? You know, <laughs> it's awful. It's awful. That it's awful for the cops. It's awful for the victims and, and the witnesses and everybody. Uh, you know? And of course, for every police officer, that terrible thing of having to say to someone, "I'm really sorry, we just can't find an answer to this. We have no one to blame." No, but now there's a lot of "I'm sorry, we can't even turn up. We're not. We're not coming." Uh, you know, we're not coming at all. So it's, I guess, I guess it, it, it's, it's, we, we have to decide how important it is to us. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen, I don't know about you, Matt, I've never seen the world so polarized, the country so polarized. No. And, and then the police are dragged into this all the time. There's two schools of thought either they're, you know, draconian bully boys mm-hmm. or they've all gone woke. Yeah, <laughs> you know, very little change in place since Peel's original Robert, not John, uh, uh, original uh, <laughs> principles. Very, very little is, is changed about how we please policing by consent and all that. Mm-hmm. They're all two hundred years old. These times moved on, cultures moved on. I think it's maybe time for for a, some sort of review to decide what a, the role of police constable looks like in twenty twenty three. Let's 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 review that role and ask the public what they want and give because. We can be anything. We can, we can be like the French, wearing jack boots and, 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 and driving water cannons, if that's what you want. Mm-hmm. The police can you know, just do what you tell them to do. Or they can be this pink and fluffy, caring, not wanting to upset. We can be that. But you need to make your minds. The trouble is the public don't know what they want. So we've got to decide what we want and then ask the police to be that. Yes. And it is possible to find a consensus, I think, in most things. Because I talk to people on this podcast all the time and I'm sure that if we explored it, there would be things that you and I would fundamentally disagree with between each other. And yet, we can find all sorts of things that we agree with mutually. Yeah, true. I, I go on social media and I'll, I'll put a post on about policing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm not an apologist for the police. You know, I think one of the reasons it's a fair cop brand works is the honesty. You yeah. know, if, if there's something that I think silly or a policy that, that won't work, I'd be the first to say it. Or if there's a bad cop done something, I'll be the, you know, I'd give him double. Yeah. Anyway, I'm on my soapbox. I'll come down now. When you admit those things in your act, and when you do that on stage, you're able to say, well, yeah, we made that mistake. And I know that was a massive mistake because I decided at that point to do this and look at the consequences. And yet you can then say, but that's what you would have done. Because when we voted, that's what you said. Yeah, true, Mm. true. And it's amazing how quickly... That that audience gets in the mindset of being a cop, right? I did a, did an earlier sh- show about public order, working the streets on a on a on a Saturday night on foot patrol with a with a colleague. It was called Gobby Nobby, <laughs> and I started off the show by saying, uh, you know, it's this bit. Her Majesty Inspector have just just revealed that twenty percent of crimes are not being recorded. Should we record all crime, or, or or should we decide what gets recorded and what shouldn't? And we took a vote on it at the top. I did quite deliberately. Mm. And of course, everybody in the room said the police should record all crime. Mm-hmm. And then, then I took them, I, I swore them in, and I was on patrol. And, the, and 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 there was a group of football lads, a bit of the, the Grimsby game, and they're a bit leery and singing in the street as I start my patrol, you know, in the evening. And what shall we do? The swearing, technically, there may be a public order offence. Oh, words of advice, words of advice. Mm-hmm. So Gobby Nobby's the ringleader. He's got a few drinks in him at that stage. <laughs> now, every cop knows that Gobby Nobby's just going to get worse and you may as well do something with Gobby Nobby now yes. because you're coming back to Gobby Nobby in a bit so <laughs> and then the next uh the so words of advice the next is 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 a nightclub and uh the bouncers rung us at the nightclub 
because the, the reviews gobby nobby entry because mm. he's had too much drink and uh, he's in the bouncer's face making physical threats now and you turn up and he's a bit in your face now he's in my face what we're going to do with, with, with that well you're a police officer you should put up with these sort of things and all that yeah but there's a queue of people waiting to go in the nightclub how does that look that behavior what's 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 that telling them is that encouraging them that that's all right mm -hmm. so we, we let nobby go and then the next minute i get called to him uh there's a man urinating. CCTV, a picture of a man urinating in a shop doorway. I think it was ironically uh, on the We Buy Any Gold sign, ironically. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I turn up and, of course, it's Gobby Nobby. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we're at the point where, well, well should we issue him a, a fixed penalty notice? Of, oh, we can't really because the rules say that if, if you're intoxicated, you won't, can't fully understand it. It's unfair waking up with one in your pocket the next morning. So, uh, And at that point, that was the first point people said, yeah, he needs to come in now. Right. We need to lock him up. And uh, I said, well, hang on a minute, though. It's 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 Friday night. The cells are nearly full. The nearest station is Grimsby, 28 miles away. Mm. Uh, and so that's an hour, at least an hour and a half, to, to take him. It's about to get busy. I could be putting my colleagues in danger if if, if I clear off for an hour and a half to take him to a different police station. Uh, oh, well, well, in that case, put him in a taxi, make sure he gets in a taxi. And so I, I'm putting Gobby in a taxi. I'll, I'll make the, send him to the taxi rank. You get in, or you'll get locked up next time I see you. And then, of course, uh, I'm just coming in uh, for my refreshments an hour later after walking about, and somebody comes screaming around the corner, and it's it's uh, I've been assaulted. I've been assaulted, and of course, Gobby Nobby's been smacked with yeah. his blood dripping off off his nose into his kebab, mm -hmm. uh, and he's reporting an assault, occasional actual <laughs> body armor, an ABH. Okay, so so that are we going to record it? Because he's drunk, so I can't take a statement, but I should take a full notebook entry. There won't be any ambulances. I'll have to run him to the hospital, get him checked out, and 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 and, and mess about with him and do all the paperwork. Mm. And almost everybody to a man in the radio theatre was like, "No, no, don't, don't bother, no, don't <laughs> bother." He's deserved. It. If anybody deserved to get smacked, it was Gobby Nobby. He was looking for it, this and that and the other. And I'm like, can you remember at the start of the show? When you said we should record all crap. So that in 30 minutes, they become hard <laughs> cops. And most cops would have done exactly what they would have done and said, clear off, Gobby Nobby. You know, at best, I'd, I'd, I'd give him my details mm. and say, if you want to make a report, you come in when you're sober and then I will look at it. But I'm not wasting my time with you. I'll never see you again. Yeah. You know. Doesn't it demonstrate how complicated the whole thing is? Yeah. It's mad. And, and how much that, that, uh, that they, you know, if they have all the information, people were like, well, the police, I don't blame them for that. Yeah. But by the time by that, that becomes a headline of the police knew and did nothing. Yes. You know, that, that's a different feel to it. He goes around the corner and kills someone. You're in big trouble. Yeah. 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 You've always got to think of the sun headlines. I always just think, okay, what's this? Somebody reported something to me, and I thought, I'm reaching from a pen. I'm thinking, shall I or shall I? And I think, what the sun headlines look like? <laughs> and very often they're like that, you know, yeah. if, 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 if the police knew and they did nothing. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, you've got to do the right thing. Absolutely. Well, that charge sheet, let's put that in. That's a great thing. All right. Uh, so uh, the next is Porter Cabin. It's a Porter Cabin uh, mm -hmm. because uh, midlife crisis, took up stand-up, talking to myself in the corner of pubs with, <laughs> with uh, bear, varying effects uh, and, and results. Quite tough to start with. There's an interesting theory that, that stand-ups have got something wrong with them, some sort of personality disorder or what, these various theories. If a normal person humiliated themselves in front of a room full of strangers and you're having that two and a half hour drive in silence with the radio off in the car, 
thinking, I'm a middle-aged guy. I've got a proper job. What have I just done? <laughs> Most normal people at that point would say, I'm not going to do that again. Mm-hmm. But stand-ups are wired up a bit different. They think, oh, just tweak that and it'll be all right. And you carry on. And those deaths become fewer and far between. Yeah. So I, I, I was into that and I took a career break from the police. My long-suffering uh, wife was very supportive. And uh, I guess... Creative wise, I'd never done anything, so so uh, I need to credit uh, need to credit my wife. So uh, it's my second marriage, uh, first marriage, I guess uh, it came across that my dad had quite a working class attitude. I guess Big Alf, he was like he passed his advice down from his father, his his Big Alf, and said, you know, if you want money, you have to work hard or work long. Mm. They're the only two options, and mm-hmm. I sort of believed that. <laughs> we know there's other ways of getting money. Well, <laughs> the irony being that I work hard and work long now. But, 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 <laughs> and I guess my my wife also had that sort of. That's how working class people in Sheffield thought. You know, my second wife, my first wife didn't let me be in the police at all. Uh, so that was an issue uh, with, with, with my first wife. Uh, and also the fact that it was a compulsive gambler, I suppose, was a slight issue as well. <laughs> poor yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, poor thing. She she actually ran off with a maggot farmer, my first wife, which... Uh, <laughs> well, she'll never want for fish. That's the I important think, thing. Uh, a much more appealing prospect <laughs> than, than I was at the time. So, so, uh, But my second wife, uh, she's much more achieving family. So her, her son, my stepson, Royal Marine Command, an officer in the Royal Marine Commandos. Uh, her first husband was an RAF wing, co- wing commander. Think about that. Best place to be a wing commander, really. Don't uh, <laughs> don't try on a submarine. <laughs> but, uh, her father was Navy. So, all, you know, so, so it's my second wife, really, that said when she went to the, the, the police station party and, and, and realized that the, my supervisors weren't necessarily ever so bright. She'd say, well, how much more money is he on than you? He's on about double my, well, uh, why aren't you doing that then? Mm. Why are they? So she inspired me to sort of look at promotion. And then uh, when I we went to a stand-up comedy club and I quite liked it, she was like, well, you're quite funny. Why don't you do that? You know, so so she she was the influence, really, that, that uh, made me think, well, actually, uh, maybe I don't just have to do this one thing because I've got no creative or performing or, or writing background. So I liked the old stand-up, and it was just a bit of a bit of a hobby. But I, I wanted to go to the Edinburgh Festival, mm. and my wife supported it. And so I, I took a career break from the police, and we were almost broke after a year. Yeah. And I said, well, I want one last throw of the dice. I want, I want to go to the iconic Edinburgh Festival. As you know, there's probably 1,300 shows, comedy shows in Edinburgh, so you just white noise. You're not going to get noticed. Intellectually, you know that. In your heart, everybody harbors a secret desire that they might get discovered. Then, <laughs> that's why you never see Lord Lucan there. You, <laughs> you might get discovered at Edinburgh. And, <laughs> and all we could afford was a porter cabin in a pub car park, was my Edinburgh venue for a few weeks. And we were flying for about four or five hours a day just to get 10 or 12 people in the porter cabin. Mm. And so that's why the porter cabin is the next, next item that's going in, because pure chance... A uh, BBC Radio 4 producer called Alison Vernon Smith walked in the port cabin one day. She's one of the 12 people. I'm shaking hands with people. It shouldn't take long. I used to stand at the door and shake hands with people. Thanks for coming. <laughs> and she said, uh, there's something going on here. It's a really different, unusual thing you're doing. And would you like to record a pilot for BBC Radio 4? So we recorded the It's a Fair Cop pilot. Mm. I mean, it took me about 18 months because I didn't know what I was doing to write the script. Yeah. And it was this boring sort of almost David Attenborough type, here's the history of policing type thing. And and to cut the boredom, 
in the middle, I'd, I'd written uh, this minute-long section of, if you went to this job, what would you do? Is your options, this, that, the other, and, and, and just a, a distraction halfway through to lift the energy, I, I put this in. And I remember Alison read all this, and I'd worked on it for months, and, and she'd read all this, and she said, you know that bit in the middle? <laughs> she said, that's the show. Yeah. <laughs> that's the show. Just to expand that for the whole 30 minutes. And mm. I thought, oh, okay, yeah. But I didn't know what I was doing, and uh, I'd only done stand-up in clubs, so I, I didn't understand that I was telling the story on the radio, and, and I was just conscious I had to keep telling jokes, really. Mm. And I, I remember I did the pilot in the BBC Radio Theatre, but it was such a lovely, warm, a lot of luck involved, isn't it? Because mm. if, if I'd have had a, a quieter audience that night, I'd never got commissioned. But they were so warm and generous, making yeah. everything funnier than, than I was, I was, I was <laughs> presenting it, and just got me over the line. And and that was it. So uh, then, of course, we, we started and we commissioned other shows. And, and they had the faith in me. And I'm also a big fan of BBC Radio 4. They still scout the old-fashioned way. That's why Alice and Werner Smith walked into that port cabin, because they still yeah. send producers up there to scout. It's not deals in wine bars. They still go looking. No, they don't wait for people to become famous. Yeah. And they weren't looking for skinny jeans, big air, obviously. No. You know, because... <laughs> Because a chubby northerner, middle-aged northerner, didn't care. So, yeah, we were off then. But it was that porter cabin yeah. in that pub car park that Alice and Vernon Smith happened to walk into that day mm-hmm. that's made the difference. Otherwise, I'm still walking the streets of Scunthorpe now and not, and not talking to you. Yeah. Your wife would have gone, that's it. We yeah. can't afford any more. That's it. Your, yeah. your year's up. It's time to go back now. Yeah. How fantastic. Well done, her. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing that it does change your life. I had exactly the same experience as a student. That to me, that seemed perfectly normal. Why would yeah. people do that? But yeah. looking back on it now, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. I li- like I said, some of those early shows, a bit ropey, mm-hmm. they allow me to get better, to learn on the job. And every series, I, I think, are a little bit better than the last. And then they, they, they allow that process. And, and there's a, I guess people want different things. I always ever wanted to be a live touring comedian, so that's what I wanted to wanted to be. But I've signed up with big sort of management companies, and they've like you know, we'll try and get you on TV. And I've I've I've, I've been on the, the couch here, as, 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 and I hear all sorts of horror stories about the control. Well, you'll know, Mike, more than people, mm-hmm. the control removed from your work and created with uh, executive producers getting a red pen out, and, and we don't want that. We've changed this, changed that. Whereas the radio show, you know, they, they, I, I write the stuff, stand up and say the stuff, and, and they let me. But that's what a good producer should do, is exactly that thing of look at that and say, that bit there, yeah. that's great, that really works. Do more with that. Yeah, yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. So the porter cabin is going in. Absolutely, let's put that porter cabin in. Okay, so we're, um, we've done shorts, we've done City's Eyes, we've done your crime report, and we've done a porter cabin. So that's four things that you want to keep. So all we've yep. got left is the one thing that you want to put in and forget. Okay, uh, yeah. I don't know what word to use or, uh, yeah, can we use a word or a concept? Uh, I don't want to say denial. Mm-hmm. I guess denial rather than excuses uh, because uh, mitigation is a, is a valid thing uh, rather than an excuse. But mm. uh, denial, I think. So so having, having told my story... Of those early days where, where I, uh, my mum drunk a lot, but I'd never heard her say that she'd got a problem with that. It was what she was entitled to do because she worked hard and that was her pleasure in life. Mm. A similar story my dad and those sad people stood in betting shops. You know, if you walk in, none of them will tell you they've got a gambling problem. I, I was the same from 
forbidden child, mm. you know. So I would say uh, denial is is the one thing that I would uh, uh, I, I, I would admit really, and, and in policing, I've seen so many well, really sad victims, you know. But but interviewing people and it's not their fault. Mm. Interviewing people and they'll blame the victim. They shouldn't have left the window open. They shouldn't have done that. They deserved it. I've seen that denial all the way through my policing career as well. Yeah. Whereas why can't we all just be a bit more honest with our own failings and then that will help us mm. uh, move on. And so that's that's the one thing uh, I'd put in, really. Yeah. Immediately that shows an awareness of your own situation by choosing <laughs> that, I think. But no, you said earlier about stand-up comedians have all got something slightly wrong with them. But in my experience... The thing that I admire about stand-up comedians is, in fact, a lot of them are terribly serious people. They talk about things that they really care about. Yeah. But they're able to do it in a way that makes it comic or comedic. And, yeah. and I think that's an extraordinary skill to not just stand up and rant about something, but to actually turn the thing around and see it from another angle. And in a way, that's what you've done with your own life, I think, in those circumstances. Thank you. That's, 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 yeah, I'm passionate. I'm passionate about, uh, various things, but one is policing, mm-hmm. uh, and one is, one is a sort of, uh, uh, gambling laws and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, no, I, I do care about these things. I am passionate about these things. And, and, uh, I'd, I'd just like to see us talk to each other a lot more instead of, uh, uh, you know, having these debates and having these open discussions rather than this, this very polarized, society that we seem to be stuck in hopefully it's a cyclical thing and we'll move through this stage but i'd like us to be having a a lot more serious chats about this stuff yeah and and who was it that, that said that uh that comedy is a serious way of being funny or something like that was yeah, it yeah. Uh, it's a serious business comedy yeah and the it's a fair cop show allows me to do that allows me to talk about some really serious stuff and you know what and you build that trust that i'm very excited about series eight that'll be out next spring and I look at some of the early superficial shows until I built that trust with the audience and with the BBC, because they obviously some of that some of my early scripts went to the top corridor. Can we talk <laughs> about this? And the policy uh, decision maker. Can we talk about this stuff? You, you know, and and so the early stuff was like just a, a shoplifter or I've stopped this shoplifter, I've stopped this drunk driver or, mm. or whatever. And I look back now, and as the shows have gone on, I've covered sort of mental health, I've covered a comedy show about uh sexual abuse and and suddenly so think well you can, that can't be a comedy and uh, i think it can if it's done properly you know there's all sorts of stuff that very powerful medium comedy if they're laughing they're listening so i'm, I'm already thinking about series eight and, and what we need to talk about and then talking about some of the serious stuff but mm. uh, in an entertaining way well i look forward to it enormously i think it's a fabulous show i think you're wonderful on it thank you and uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you i have to say thank you mike thank you for asking me i appreciate it you have been listening to my time capsule with me mike fenton stevens and my guest alfie moore Thank you very much for giving me your time and listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it enough to rate it highly and maybe even give it a glowing review. You can also have it lined up for you on your podcast provider app, ready to listen to every time we release an episode. There are over 340 so far, so clearly that's fairly regularly. Still, the joy of having them there is you can listen at your leisure whenever you choose. 
I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and now Threads. And so is My Time Capsule. The My Time Capsule sites are very professional. I haven't the faintest idea what I'm doing, which, let's face it, might turn out to be more fun than if I did. Anyway, feel free to join me and chat on any or all of them. Our theme tune was written and performed by Pass the Peas Music and is available on Spotify. This podcast is available ad-free for a small subscription on Acast Plus. Details in the description of this episode. You also get a bonus podcast weekly. It's called My Time Capsule The Debrief. That sounds fun, doesn't it? This was a cast-off production for Acast. Our producer was John Fenton Stevens. Now, anyone who ever saw the two Ronnies will know there are loads of police jokes. Police station toilets stolen, the police have nothing to go on. There's very friendly police in this area. I had a notice on my car saying parking fine. Uh, a glue tanker shed its load. Most drivers are sticking to the inside lane, etc., etc. But my favourite is the policeman who stops a man and says, Have you been drinking, sir? And the man says, No. The policeman says, good, right, I'm going to ask you to blow in this bag. The man says, why? And the policeman says, well, my chips are hot. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.